and welcome to Patmos. Thank you for watching and or listening. Today we're going to be talking about the addictions of positivity and negativity and how those kind of interflow into your spirituality. Um, but first I'd like to ask everyone who's listening or watching to the podcast to please leave a rating and review on iTunes if you're watching on YouTube, like the video, subscribe, hit that notification bell, all that kind of good stuff that every single podcaster tells you to do. Um, I also have a small community that I started on the locals.com site. And I really like locals, uh, one, because they're kind of outside that Silicon Valley control mechanism also, because it's it's actually a, a pretty good social media site. It's kind of a uh, a mix between uh, Twitter and Facebook, I guess, uh, to a certain extent. It's kind of like a Facebooky uh, Patreon. And uh, joining it is absolutely free. Uh, reading is free. You can go there and see everything that I've posted. I don't do any subscriber-only stuff just yet. Uh, but uh, to comment or to post yourself questions or anything else that you uh, may have, uh, the minimum is $2 a month. I can't get it any lower than that, and I can't set it to where it's absolutely free. Um, this is how they fund uh, their website, so uh, I don't fault them for that. Um, and I use all the subscribers that have uh, so far subscribed. I use all of that money to pay for things like hosting for the website. I have to pay for hosting to host the actual audio formats that get uploaded to the various podcasting platforms as well as pay for equipment, things like that. If you'd rather donate via cryptocurrency, you may as well. I have the addresses listed, um, pinned uh, to the welcome post on the locals.com site. So that's ozymandias.locals.com, O-Z-Y-M-A-N-D-I-A-S dot locals.com. So like I said, today we're going to be talking about positivity, negativity, the addictions that people have uh, for both of those. And you know, we all have seen, you know, we know and kind of recognize the rifeness of addictions in modern society. This isn't some sort of revelatory statement, and it's really almost cliche at this point, but the fact that it's cliche does not make it less true. Um, this may look like it's a new thing, but in fact, it's as old as humanity. Um, technology has changed the manifestations of it, but it truly is old hat. Uh, what has changed is our ability to actually indulge in these types of behavior at scale and for the durations that we do. Uh, there's a reason that the concept of idle hands was considered dangerous. Uh, in modern society, we have created such luxury um, that the dearth of free time that we now have, the actual ability to sit there and do things like binge watch a series for hours or days or even weeks, I guess, if you really wanted to. And probably a lot of people have actually been doing that over the past year. We have so much free time, we really don't know what to do with ourselves and are constantly looking for new things to kind of fill that time. For many, we have an addiction to positivity or negativity or both. And you can see this manifest rampantly on social media as we have taken to these platforms as kind of being like the new masks that we wear. In the past, what you wore, like the actual clothing, how you presented yourself was kind of more of the mask that you presented to the world. You presented your best self when you'd go to various social things, when you'd go to church. 
how you presented yourself, mainly manifest in your clothes and how you did yourself, you know, made sure that your shave was close if you're a man, um, kind of necktie that you would wear, let's say, for women, how they do their hair or jewelry, if they had any that they'd wear. Um, this best self, uh, that self that was what had that reputation, and that reputation was you, was kind of that public mask. Now, what I often see are really kind of these masks of false positivity and genuine negativity. So let's start with false positivity. We are, we are create uh, creatures that have been created for hope. Really, man is a creature of hope. But since the fall of man, we have always wanted kind of to recapture that hope that was the reality of, of Eden, that guarantee of perfection that it held. We hope for the perfection that can only be found in God's creation. As our culture has fa fallen farther and farther from God, that yearning still remains, that want of hope still manifests. But in secular terms, um, secular kind of being refined sugar, um, it's it's without substance. It's vapid. It's unfulfilling. And it's like clockwork. You'll see it. This is more of an American Western thing, kind of Anglo thing, probably more than, in, than anything. But we see come January 1st, large swaths of our friendship circle start posting promises of new year, new me, right? And they promise to curb this vice, to enact this discipline, to accomplish some task or some goal that they've set for themselves. But January, or I'm sorry, February, March, April, you already see the majority of these people. They said, oh, I'm going to work out every day. You see like six days of them posting their gym pics and then nothing, right? You're already starting to see the majority falling away from that conviction they held so dear only weeks or months before. And a lot of times these are the same people that post these vapid quotes and inspirations that don't really say much at all outside the use of positive adjectives and general advice of love yourself and all these sorts of things. And the reason you often see high correlations with people who post these things and in, but in real life are quite sad, depressed, disorganized, disordered, is that they're trying to replace God with mere words of the material, of the material world. And many of us have become addicted to attaching significance to the mere words shared with a click as replacements for the deep, true nourishment of God, of spirituality. And you'll see this even among Christians who have little to no real spiritual life, no deep contemplation, but constantly post these vapid quotes that are about God, that are about spirituality, but really that's all it is. It's just a quote. There's nothing actually there. Bible verses will abound about the peace found in Christ, but they actually don't feel any peace. They will spend time flipping through their timelines and sharing these things, but they'll spend no time in silent prayer, no time in meditation, no time trying to actually attain a level of contemplation that starts to bring that into your life, you know, and actually feeding their soul with the manna from heaven. So John Verveke is a Canadian professor that I interviewed years back um, in my Bitcoin podcast, and he spoke about what we're going through right now, or what we have been going through for some time, which he calls the meaning crisis. And this is specifically more about the Western world than anything else, or more about the West than, say, the East, although 
basically anybody that's kind of adopted a, <clears throat> a Western outlook, a Western way of life, <clears throat> excuse me, which a lot of you go throughout the world and in the East and China and they have a lot of their own culture, but they still have adopted a lot of Western kind of materialism. And with that brings a lot of these same problems. And that is we have, especially in the West, slowly kind of since the enlightenment slowly and then rapidly rejected these traditional institutions that once bound our society together and more correctly ourselves to a greater meaning, we are searching for replacements. And specifically, I mean, th this counts for things like our local schools, our community organizations, you know, 4-H club, uh, Rotary club, um, Elks club, all these types of things. But really the larger meaning-based organizations we're talking about is Christianity, our churches. And we can even find this meaning crisis uh, within professed Christians. We have embraced the refined sugar of modernist Christianity who equates spirituality with how we feel about it. What makes you feel good? What sermon makes you feel good? What church makes you feel good? What, you know, this is why you see the mega churches. They put on a good show. Like, it, it, as far as this, this is one of the reasons I'm so, uh, one of my many criticisms about modernist Catholic liturgy is you're never going to out-Protestant the Protestants. You're never going to outdo the megachurch. They're always going to have better laser light shows. They're always going to have, their churches are, I mean, like, they build these massive, these megachurches and their auditoriums, their theaters, right? Our churches are not built for that. They were built for a very specific purpose, and it was not snare drums, laser light shows and all these sorts of things. You know, like the point of a homily or sermon is really lost for a lot of these people who equate feeling as being one of the higher goods that you're that you're searching for when you go to worship God or supposedly worship God on Sundays. The point, the homily, whatever they're saying is lost if they weren't inspired. Right? You have to be inspired. You have to have this, you have to come away feeling jazzed up for those few hours or few days, right? The, ma the master service must make us feel something to have value. You have to feel something to have value. The value is not inherent in what you're actually doing, worshiping God. The value is in how do I feel? We judge God in his presence or lack thereof based on how we feel about it. Oh, I didn't feel God there, so I'm not going to go back there. I'm going to go to this church because that one made me feel better, right? And this is the danger of emotional worship, of attaching significance to how, what you are getting out of it. It's not that you shouldn't get anything out of it or that if you do feel something that it's bad, right? But that is a secondary effect of what we are trying to do there, right? So you shouldn't feel bad if you go like, wow, I was inspired. Oh, that made me like, I'm just as much as anybody else. I like to see a homily that is really kind of punching up as far as for speaking against the world. I, I, I love listening to these talks. I love listening to these homilies. I do feel things when I go to mass, but that is not the primary purpose as a secondary effect. And it is hard because when we go to mass, we go to a church service, whatever your background may be, it, it makes it, it does make it harder. It is a holdup if you go like, well, I didn't like the homily or I didn't like this priest. And I don't like how he, what he talks about or whatever, right? And there is a certain level of, if that priest or pastor or whatever is speaking in a way and talking about faith and meaning and all these sorts of things in a way that has nothing to do with the history and tradition of the church, 
that is something else to consider. But the, the point is to go to a, you know, for Catholics, for us to go to a vowed mass to celebrate in the sacrifice of Christ. That's the point. Not that the homily is going to make us feel better or not that the, the you know, the, the, the chant is beautiful or anything like that. Because if you go to a low mass, um, there is no music or anything like that, right? It's very quiet, actually. And, you know, that has its own feeling and effects and everything like that, too. But that is a secondary effect. The primary effect that we're supposed to be therefore is to worship God in the most reverent, efficacious way to God, not what is most efficacious towards us to make us feel better. So worship prayer has benefit to us clearly, but we are not the center, the focus, the the, the point of prayer or worship. The purpose is worship of he who was, is, and always will be. This is the main impetus for my turning back to the to the traditional Mass. The entire development of the Mass over all these centuries, over all these millennium, was the focus on God. For example, facing ad orientum, facing to the east, because Christ said that he will return in the east. Um, ad orientum means to face east and Latin. Many of the prayers are also unheard, like I just said with the low mass, they're unheard by the participants. One cannot worship at the mass and think when you go to a traditional mass and go, wow, this is about me. This is about, like, they really are really focused on, you know, how I feel and, you know, in this, in this celebration. In the Novus, Novus Ordo, the priest faces you, shows you this, speaks to you. The focus is on participation by all, holding hands for the Our Father, the Mass, stopping as people give the sign of peace to each other. And somewhat of a digression, the, the, the flashing the peace sign that you see, like, I don't know if this is everywhere. I think this is more of an American thing. It's probably the ugliest thing. And once again, thanks, boomers. The creators of the Novus Ordo specifically focused, really, like, a lot of their inspiration came from the larger Protestant tradition, you know, like the participation of the people, right? And to me, this just shows very little, little reverence to God. The Eucharistic prayer number two was rushedly written, and this is the one that's most commonly used because it's the shortest, it was rushedly written on a restaurant napkin. You can look it up if you don't believe it. Now, other, people have said, and I will give them their due, that the reason that it was rushedly written was because um, it was, the, what originally what it was going to be written as was just was even worse. So actually, some people, the, the, the people that wrote it, were trying to do it to get it so that it was a little bit more reverent. So... I mean, that is something, but that's also why these types of changes should take a very long time to do, and it should not be done in a space of a month or year. But anyways, I digress. This is all, though, what I'm talking about. It's just a extension of modernism's kind of focus on the self, focus on you, focus on me, focus on the individual, whether it's the use, yeah, the, the new mass and Novus, Novus Ordo or Facebook sharing. It's all about me, 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 me. It's all about you, 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 you. It's about the person and not about God. We don't look to God for meaning or purpose. We don't look to God for thanks and worship. We're looking to ourselves, how to make ourselves feel better, feel, feel useful, validate ourselves through ourselves. Why, after all these years of self-help and building up of self, of building confidence, do we continue to see higher and higher suicide rates, higher rates of depression? We cannot reject our creator who has set us forth for one sole purpose, 
to worship, to serve, then reject that purpose and then somehow expect good results. You can't, a vehicle is made to intake gasoline, to start that, to run the engine, through combustion, to go forward, to go from point A to point B. If you try to start to turn a vehicle into a generator, it can work, but that's not how it's designed. And then over time, it is going to break down. That's not what it's designed to do. It's designed to have all these sorts of things. You know, it's going to work for a little bit, but it's going to have issues. It's not conducting its purpose. It's not doing what it's designed to do. And that's not what we are designed to do. Now, the opposite side of this coin is negativity. And to kind of abruptly segue into that. Uh, it shouldn't be a surprise that dedicating yourself that, you know, we all have different vocations. Some people's vocations is to be a priest. Some people's vocation is to be uh, religious, nuns, brothers. Um, some people are meant for marriage. The vast majority are. And then there's also even a smaller, uh, smaller group of people that are consecrated virgins, right? They, they, are, they live a consecrated life, but they're not married. And they're also not in the religious life either. But it, it should not surprise you that if you dedicate yourself, if you truly go, this is my vocation, this is what I'm going to do, whether it's being a priest, whether it's being a nun, whether it's being monastic, whether it's being married, whether it's being any of these things. If you dedicate yourself to that vocation, to serving God in that vocation, this does not mean that you're going to have continual bliss and happiness, that nothing bad will happen, right? Of course it's going to. Life is full of suffering. It's one of the insights that uh, Buddhists got cracked. Life is suffering. It's full of suffering, whether you are Catholic, whether you are atheist, Buddhist, Scientologist, Orthodox, whatever. However, in our faith, understanding Christ, we recognize suffering for what it is. It is a call by God to greater sanctification, perhaps even a great mercy for, for us. It sometimes it takes us a long time or never to really fully understand them. A child being <clears throat> taken early in life may have been a mercy so that they would avoid, say, a path of damnation, maybe, right? I mean, I know that sounds harsh, but it's, it's hard to tell. There's all different reasons why that may have happened. Um, or it may have spared them an end that was even worse. We just can't understand that because we don't know God's plan. We're not omnipotent. We cannot see all possible paths. A lost job now may well be if, if that suffering is embraced, whether it's a lost job or a lost relationship, I'm not talking about divorce, but I mean like a lost relationship, maybe actually setting you up. At the time, it feels terrible. You go, why? Why me? Right? But it may be setting you up for a better future. And maybe not financially or materially, but setting you up to serve God in the best way. And if you are dedicated to serving God, then you will see that. Now, a lot of people don't see that. They go, why does this bad thing happen? Why does that bad thing happen? Well, if you're, they're, they're not looking at it through, well, people are meant to serve God. So they will never see that as being a reason. They've completely blinded themselves to all these possible reasons for why X, Y, or Z may have happened. So when that bad thing leads to X, Y, or Z, they can't see it. They can't understand it. Or, you know, also, you may have just gone down a darker path um, by staying at that job or something along those lines. And we know that suffering occurs. For the atheist, it's just a random event set in motion by others or perhaps even by yourself or something that just happens. Life is just a random 
occurrences, right? And there's interaction, but really it's all just random. There's no meaning behind it. For us, we know that if we properly form ourselves to God, it's something that helps us to become better, to become better, to become more holy, to, to, it's that fire that, that helps to, to burn off the impurities, right? If you have gold, it has a bunch of impurities using fire and heat and, and all these things. It helps to burn off the impurities out of that gold so that it shines even brighter. The greatest, the greatest leaps that a lot of times people will have in their spiritual life, you know, they rarely come because of a long period of bright sunny days, but it's actually the, the dark stormy nights that, that help lead to that for a lot, for most of us. Every great saint has spoken of periods of suffering, of aridity of the soul, a dryness of the soul, but also of the fruits that those periods gave them. For some, it lasted their whole lives. Negativity is, well, you know, we all, we all suffer, right? And, and the non-believer will scream into the sky, why me, right? And the, but we as Christians, we embrace it. And we use that spiritual alchemy of Christ to turn that lead into gold. That's really what we do through suffering. We take that lead, that heavy weight of lead that is that suffering, that darkness. And through Christ, he changes that lead into gold. And But the problem with negativity, though, it's, it's as dangerous of an addiction as false positivity is the false positivity where I talked about just a minute ago. And this is actually kind of somewhat of a particular cross. I shouldn't say somewhat. It is a particular cross that I bear and have only come more aware of the pervasiveness that it has in my life more recently because of my experiences, spending a good chunk of my youth in war. I developed a pretty rough edge and anger was a tool. Negativity was a tool of a way to stay focused to keep my edge sharp so that I wouldn't become complacent in the types of situations that happen there. It served me well, or so I thought, and while I lightened up quite a bit after getting married, having kids, and kind of leaving that behind, it did continue to affect me in different ways. I would become bothered easily, and then without realizing it, I would continue to kind of feed that anger, feed that negativity, until that actually spurned off into become a completely new problem in and of itself. I was addicted in a way and and I have to, well, I guess you never really get over an addiction. So I, I guess I am addicted in a way of uh, to being angry. It was a, it was a comfortable place, a uh, place um, I'd made home for most of my life. And I've never had really an issue with being wrong, right? I've, or changing my position on something. And I've actually done that quite a bit. I don't want to go over all those things. And it's not a pat on my back, but I haven't had an issue that, um, I don't immediately change, but usually what happens is that over time, as I'm fed more and more information that proves my previous worldview wrong. Um, and I can validate that, then I, I don't have a, a problem over time changing my position on that. It, you know, this is more of a sin of pride in that I, even though if I was right, I felt I was right to feel angry to the point where any chance I had at making a change then became overcome by that anger. And I wouldn't allow myself to change because if I did, then my anger would be wrong, right? And I didn't want to leave my comfortable place. 
I wasn't allowing myself to become an instrument of God, uh, trusting God's plan and his timeline. I preferred my own. This is not something that's unique to me, you know, to a lot of people. I even got to the point where I was seeing that anger and sadness that I'd created for myself was actually a sort of a cross to bear a righteous suffering. I was, in fact, not offering up suffering to God, but believing my own sin of anger itself was a sacrifice. I was ignoring the lamb in the thicket and kind of just dragging myself to the offer like, like uh, Abraham to Isaac. Uh, sin is very pervasive, and it's binding uh, in that way. And we are called to suffer. We are called to accept the sufferings that God sends us, but we're not called to create more suffering for ourselves needlessly. Um, St. Philip Neri said that men are often carpenters of their own crosses, and this is very true. We must carry the crosses God gives us. We are not to build them ourselves, as we are then unable to carry the ones that are sent to us by God because we're already weighted down by the ones that we have created for ourselves. Some will say, or could say, I guess, um, you know, isn't fasting or things like hair shirts or other mortifications bring, bringing suffering to yourself in the same way? Yeah, you could say that. I mean, looking at it in that way, yes. But there's nuance to this. Fasting is different than bringing on, you know, your own anger or depression or whatever. You're giving up a pleasure for God. Mortifications such as things like hair shorts or the uh, sleece are legitimate sacrifices. They cause discomfort of the flesh as tools for spiritual growth. But I'm not saying all these things for you to Google them and go, oh, I want to do this, right? These are not things that you should ever do on your own. You need to do these under strict guidance, um, under an experienced spiritual director, because by doing these on your own, there are pitfalls with all these sorts of mortifications that can come. Um, you know, individuals can become masochistic in a way, um, thinking in the, they are they they are then creating crosses for themselves. Truly, if they aren't under an experienced spiritual director, who can tell you you need to you need we not you need to stop doing this or you need to start doing this or things like that. This is not something that you want to start on your own. Um, so joyful suffering is something that's been revealed to me in more recent days, or I should say, um, over the past year, as I, as I begin to feel myself falling to bad habits of anger, I, I've started to learn to call myself out on it. I've started to recognize my old patterns. Um, I'll ask if the reason I'm angry is legitimate. If it's not, I give it up. If it is legitimate, Right, because there are times to be legitimately angered or bothered or something like that. Um, you know, car breaking down, uh, project you're working on not working out, new new venture or something like that that you're doing not succeeding as you had hoped. Um, I ask, you know, if it is, I ask God for joyful suffering to experience that. Um, that I should find joy that God is sending me these mortifications, these paths to sanctification. I do no, God no service by turning my eyes from heaven back down to earth. Um, and instead of 
repeating prayers, using my lips to repeat prayers, I start to spew bile and hatred and those types of things. I do God no service by doing that. This is not of God. Anger is a reaction. It's not a cause. Anger is a reaction that if we are properly formed, notifies us of something bad, right? It's a natural reaction. And it's, there's other ways to go about it, but this is a very base reaction that we have. Like if someone blasphemes, our reaction of anger helps us to know that we need to correct, to rebuke that person, to tell them not to do it. If we see sacrilege, our anger lets us know that we need to fix that problem and stop it. St. Thomas uh, Aquinas said that the lack of passion of anger itself is a vice. St. John Chrysostom said that one that one sins when one doesn't become angry for a good cause. What the saints are talking about here is that when something occurs that offends God, you should feel angry about it. Abuse of the sacraments should make you angry as it makes God angry. It does not mean one should let that anger control them, though. Give yourself over to God. Pray to the Holy Spirit to guide you, to guide your words, to let them be fruitful. One of the prayers that I've just kind of started saying was like, Lord, um, let my actions be your actions and not mine. Let my words that leave my lips be your words and not mine. Follow uh, lead and I shall follow and give me the wisdom and knowledge to understand when you are leading me, right? So I want, I, I'm asking for the Holy Spirit to guide me not to uh, let myself be led by my own passions, but to let my passions be for God and let the God speak through me. Give yourself over to God. Pray to the Holy Spirit, like I said, to, to, to guide you. Feel the, the passion, right? That impulse to correct and know that it matters that this is a righteous anger. The vice that St. Thomas was speaking of is complacency to see a blasphemy, blasphemy and shrug it off as, well, it's not my business. It's, you know, it's really not that important. I'm not the one saying it, that it doesn't affect you. Um, to hold the heretical belief that you're not called to confront such things since, you know, God's going to take care of it, right? This is not, this is the vice that he's speaking of. Christ felt the passion of anger when he chased the money changers from his father's house. He, however, embraced the joyful suffering during his passionate death. He could not have without any effort at any point, he could have, I should say, um, without any effort, at any point, sent the entirety of the Roman Empire into the sea, but he did not. He suffered under their persecution. He took the beatings, the shame, the pain, the suffering, and still asked for them to be forgiven, for they did not know what they were doing. We need to embrace with joyful suffering what God sends to us. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean that you're not going to question it. It doesn't mean that you're you know, all these sorts of things. But this is our path to sanctification. We also need to recognize righteous anger when it is justified, but not so, not fall so deeply into that passion that our actions are counterproductive to our goals. The only way to better, uh, to reach a better understanding of what God wants from us in this life and in all situations that arise is through increasing prayer and communion with him through and fasting. God, we praise you. Te Deum Laudimus. <laughs>